Erica. And I'm Julianne. And this is Radical Healing. We gather stories from the Christian missionary community in Japan, where we both grew up, and talk to people about what it's like to navigate life after leaving that bubble. We interview alumni from our alma mater, the Christian Academy in Japan. We also talk to people who've had similar experiences of deconstructing and reconstructing their worldviews in profound ways. By connecting with like-minded people out there who felt silenced or alone in their experiences, we want to serve as a resource for healing. Hey everyone, it's Julianne here. So on this episode, we talked to Krista Carrick-Burns, who is a nurse practitioner and one of our friends who attended the Christian Academy in Japan. We talk a lot about purity culture with Krista, which is one of the really damaging parts about growing up in the evangelical church. And so I'm glad we got to talk about all of this because purity culture has wreaked havoc on many of us and our relationships with our own sexuality in some sneaky ways and some not so sneaky ways. And I believe that to heal, we need to name the harm and unpack it together in community. Uh, We actually recorded this conversation months ago, but I've been thinking a lot about our conversation in light of the Atlanta mass shootings that happened in March where a white man raised in the Baptist church and steeped in purity culture murdered eight people, six of them Asian women, because he wanted to eliminate his temptation. And I believe this attack holds a mirror up to America and the American evangelical church, uh, that it reflects the entrenchment of white male supremacy and the misogyny and racism and the fetishization of Asian women and the dangerousness of purity culture that is part of America and the institutions of the church. So if this isn't a wake-up call for self-examination for the white evangelical church, I do not know what is. And if this is not a time for the church to closely examine itself, its institutions, its culture, and its teachings that produce this kind of toxicity, I do not know what is. So again, I'm, I'm really glad we got to talk about all of this with Krista, especially to hear her perspectives as a health professional and health educator. And I think you'll really enjoy it too. So here is Krista now to introduce the topic. Hey everyone, this is Krista. In this episode, we talk a lot about our thoughts on purity culture. Personally, after growing up in a community that promoted the purity movement, I had to work through a lot of shame around my own sexuality. As I was reflecting on our interview, I wanted to share a few things that I've learned and found helpful in reframing this topic. First of all, exploring your sexuality and your body in safe, consensual ways that respects boundaries is not something to feel guilty or ashamed of. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you a person. Sexual thoughts and feelings are a normal part of the human experience. Furthermore, your value as a partner, not to mention as a human, is not defined by your sexual experience or expression. Secondly, consent is a life skill that is always an ongoing conversation with romantic partners 
but is also relevant to all relationships. Consent, particularly in sexual relationships, looks like an emphatic and enthusiastic yes, not just a lack of a no, regardless of your relationship or history. Third and finally, your body is incredible and powerful and belongs to you, not to anyone else. Your body is not a stumbling block and you are not responsible for anyone else's thoughts or actions. Hello, Krista. It's Hello. so good to see you. <laughs> it's good to see both of you too, your beautiful faces. <laughs> we were just saying that we haven't seen, well, I haven't seen you since 2008, I think. So it's been 12 years. Wow. Uncomfortably long. <laughs> <laughs> but we all look exactly the same, <clears throat> I think. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Where are you right now? I have like, I, I heard that you were in Alaska, but aside from that, I have no idea really what you're up to. Yeah. So currently, uh, as we speak, I'm in Seattle. I was living in Alaska for a year. I did a um, rural and global health fellowship up there. But besides the, that past year, I've been in Seattle for a little over 10 years now. Um, since I graduated from CAJ. So I'm here. I'm actually starting a new job in a week um, as a family nurse practitioner at a local community health center. That's awesome. <clears throat> when do you start your new job? Next Monday. So wow. I've got a, a, a week more of uh, freedom and then back to the grind. So you were a nurse practitioner in Alaska as well? and. Continu continuing that? Correct. Yeah, yeah. I graduated from my nurse practitioner program last, well, let's see, 2019, summer 2019, um, left and went up to Alaska for a year. Things were sort of thrown off a bit by the whole pandemic, but um, finished out a year doing rural practice up there, um, which was a very interesting experience. A far, a far cry from Tokyo, I'd say. Wow. Yeah, I would love to hear about that. Maybe we can back up a little bit and you can give a mm -hmm. general self-introduction yeah. for people who don't know you. Absolutely. So I grew up in Tokyo. Uh, my parents are both teachers. We moved there for my dad's job as an English professor. Well, they moved there. I wasn't born yet. Um, then I met you two at CAJ probably when you started in kindergarten because I was a year ahead of both of you. But I went to, well, I guess I went to Japanese preschool for a couple of years. Then I went to CAJ, which is an international um, Christian school. And I was there through senior year. I did spend a semester going to public school here in the U.S., live with my grandparents. It's kind of just a, looking for a change of scenery. Um, and then after I graduated from CAJ, I moved to Seattle and went to college um, here, <clears throat> went to nursing school. Actually, uh, Erica's older sister, Jenny, um, sort of took me under her wing and made me feel okay about things when they weren't okay. She was very helpful. She was a couple years ahead of me. Um, and then I graduated from SPU with my uh, bachelor's in nursing, um, worked as an RN for about six years. I did a few different jobs, and then I started back to grad school at the University of Washington, also here in Seattle. I'm sorry. I feel like I should know this, but can you explain what is a nurse practitioner? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is an advanced practice nurse. So you, someone who's gone through the four-year bachelor program, usually um, for nursing, then you go on to a graduate school program. Most of them are master's or doctoral level programs. And you'd spend a few years learning like additional clinical knowledge, background, pharmacology, um, diagnostics, and you spend time doing practical work too. So you do like clinical rotations, being preceptored, so mentored, supervised by experienced clinicians. And then when you graduate, so that like the distinction is that nurse practitioners can diagnose, prescribe uh, medication and admit patients to the hospital. <clears throat> but there's all different flavors of that. So like I, I did the family practice route, so I can like I can work in a primary care clinic or acute setting, seeing anyone, like all ages, pediatrics, adults, geriatrics. Um, but there's also like pediatric focused nurse practitioners, geriatric focused. There's nurse midwives, which is a sort of different scope. They generally do like um, care of uh, mothers and newborns um, or just women's women's health, sexual reproductive health. Um, and then there's nurse anesthetists, which is kind of, they do like the job of an anesthesiologist. And what are you going to be doing? So I will be doing primary care for, for the most part. Um, so like my, the job that I'm taking is a flex role. So I don't have a paneled set of patients who are mine. Like no one will say, Krista Burns is my primary care provider. Um, but I will be there to provide access for appointments if patients need same day or acute care stuff. Um, and right now they're doing a lot of COVID care stuff. So testing people who have respiratory symptoms and are concerned about either COVID or thinking maybe I need antibiotics. We see those people too. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I would say, um, I, so I have a background in labor and delivery and I worked in a women's clinic when I was going through school and um, worked as a sexual assault nurse examiner. So I feel most comfortable talking about women's health concerns, GYN concerns, reproductive health concerns. Cool. Wow, that's amazing. How did you get, how did you get interested in that, into nursing in general and then that speciality? Yeah, yeah. I actually saw a nurse practitioner as a teenager um, for like a school physical, but it, it was someone here in the States. We were visiting my grandparents and I just remember having such a good experience. Like she didn't make me feel scared or ashamed or anything. It was just like a very positive visit. Um, and she also was the one who first diagnosed me with low thyroid. So kudos to her for catching that. So I always thought like, oh, that seems like a cool job. I think I would be interested in doing that. And when we were touring colleges, um, when I was in high school, I picked up a pamphlet on the nursing program at SPU. And it was like, do you like an active job where you're interacting with people all day? You get to like help people out when they need help. And it's challenging mentally and physically. You know, it was like, yes, 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 yes. This sounds like exactly the job I would love to do. And so that's why I was like nursing school. And then when I was working as an RN, 
I remember, I was like thinking back to, you know, all the NPs I've known in my life and also thinking about all the patients I was seeing because I was working cardiac at that time. All the, all these like really sick patients I would see in the hospital. And I thought I would really love to be someone who intervenes upstream and helps keep people healthy. Like that was just sort of where I felt like my soul would do the most good. Well, okay, so let's get into how do you see the world differently now as opposed to when you were growing up? Mm -hmm. Um, When I was growing up, I sort of took Christianity and religion as just a given. Like I was a willing participant, I would say, in um, both at school and my family went to church, which was also at school. Um, same same campus. Um, and then, and I actually went to a Christian college on purpose. I wanted to continue to be sort of in that environment. And then I sort of slowly be, was becoming a little disillusioned with it as I got into my professional working life um, and met people from lots of different walks of life, lots of experiences. And then I started reading a book called God question mark. <laughs> it's a, uh, I think it's used in probably philosophy courses, but it's basically a debate between an atheist and a theist um, written in like 2004 or something. And I was reading it in uh, SFO, so San Francisco airport. We we're like on our way to visit somebody. And I just remember having this moment of like, whoa, I uh-oh. really, yeah, uh-oh, <laughs> I was like, because I was reading it to challenge and affirm my beliefs, and it was like, hey, the, that, those, those arguments by the atheist are really good, and I think I believe them, like, that jives with me a little bit more than the theist arguments, and it was just like this, oh, shit, I don't believe any of this moment, so, yeah, it was, you know, it was a little bit scary, but at the same time, when I realized I didn't have to then continue to live in this sort of black, white, sin, hell, heaven narrative, I felt really freed, like a huge weight lifted, and I could just move forward in the world trying to figure out my desires and passions and not have to figure out what the like quote unquote right way to live. I could focus on what was right for me and not a all knowing beings plan for me. Um, that just had been feeling like a lot of pressure. Mm. So now I would say that I would loosely identify as a humanist. Maybe I'm not committed to any particular doctrine or anything like I'm I don't think I could say I'm like a staunch atheist or a staunch agnostic or what have you I think I feel most spiritual when I'm in nature and I and I also think that like humans are just meaning seeking and like crave purpose so I totally understand that and sort of like Amy I don't know if you guys have read Amy Poehler's um book, but she goes by the mantra of good for you, not for me. Um, And that's sort of how I feel about religion. Like being without it has been much better for me, but for some people, uh, maybe it's, you know, they're what what they need. 
So like, what did that look like for you? I guess, how does it play out in your life? You know, whether you're religious or not, like what, what's one of the biggest differences, I guess. I think uh, maybe for me, one of the biggest differences is I feel like I have less firm ideas of how other people need to live their life. Mm. Like, like I, I revel in the gray, you know, like there's, there's so much room for people to do good things out, outside of the confines of like religious doctrine. And for, for me, it's, it's let me let go of a lot of judgment, I think. Of course, that's, you know, we all still will have times where we're being judgmental or whatever, but it's allowed me to be a lot more open and thinking about all the different ways people can live amazing lives. And my Sunday mornings are for me. Yes. <laughs> and I, and uh, coffee and bacon or whatever is on the menu that day. <laughs> I listened to a podcast um, called The Life After. It's an ex-evangelical podcast. And their mantra is, remember, Sunday is just a second Saturday. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's yeah. to have a totally. two-day weekend. I think that's what I, we need at least two days. Oh my gosh. More like three days, but. Yeah, I was going to say ideally three, but yeah. two is better than one. We're moving in the right direction. <laughs> I like what you said about being in the gray. And I think that's, um, yeah, moving away from Christianity, which really encourages black and white thinking. It feels safer in a lot of ways, but then mm -hmm. it creates a lot of anxiety too when other people are not living the white the way you know, the, yeah the I mean black and white you know the correct way but then yeah. also white yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. yes. <laughs> little, little Freudian flip <laughs> yes. yeah yes. no for sure like I used to get like nauseous when people would tell me about things they were doing that the church had told me was wrong but I was like you know, I don't see objectively how it's hurting anyone, but like nausea, just like this whole body of like, that can't be good. <laughs> and that's just silly. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's not that like, it totally makes sense to feel nauseous if you are hearing, you know, about someone doing something like actively harmful. But, you know, I was thinking this morning, like, Growing up, the worst thing that I was taught is that you could live with someone and not be married to them, you know? And it's like, totally. there are so many bad things that we absolutely, understandably feel nauseous about. I'm, I'm sure yes. you have witnessed so much harm, you know, in, in your work as, you know, as well as, you know, just your life. Um, but we weren't taught like, oh, those are the nauseous things. It was no. like having sex with someone that you love. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And a committed, you know, just premarital anything is bad. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just so misdirected. Yeah. I mean, uh, behavior control, like behavior control, behavior. Yeah. yeah. Especially when like eternal consequences are on the line. It puts so much pressure where there doesn't need to be and creates perverse incent incentives, I think. Mm. 
I, I like I, I'm just so not in that world anymore that I kind of forget like, wow, those things like re- really affected me. Yeah. And they it's didn't like, need to. Yeah. It's like you get flashbacks. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I can't believe that's what I thought, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like whisper, whisper, this person might be gay. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. doesn't affect me at all. Right. <laughs> they're just right. like, you know, they're just figuring out who they are and yeah, like, exploring and that's wonderful and I feel nauseous about it (laughs) but also yeah I mean that's a really valid point but we've also been talking about how it teaches you to have like self-hatred you Mm -hmm. know or just like constant like guilt and shame so it's also like damaging to you yes absolutely yeah yeah we could talk more about it's kind of a segue into the whole like purity culture sex thing Yeah, would you like uh, to talk yeah. about that now? Um, since we kind of opened the door already, or we can we can we can flip back to it later on. Yeah, yeah, we could talk about it now. Yeah, let's just do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes, yeah, so for the listener, that is one of the things that Krista mentioned wanting to talk about in our discussion. So we'll be unpacking that uh purity culture. And maybe we can explain a bit about purity culture um for mm-hmm listeners who might not be familiar, maybe just with that specific term. To back up a bit, sexual abstinence has been a part of evangelicalism from forever. But um, in the 90s, there were these like concerted efforts to really double down on that. And so... Um, Backed by example, federal funding. Yes. Okay, yeah, we should... there's so much history I want to learn about. <laughs> um, yes. Yes, and I would love to hear about that from you, Krista, like sex education, um, especially from your perspective as a, as a health educator. Um, but during the 90s, there was an organization called True Love Waits, which was created by the Southern Baptist Convention. And that would be, um, they would organize conferences uh, and events for young people where they would encourage them to take purity pledges, which is basically a like a abstinence pledge um, that they would commit to not having sex before getting married. And there would be things like purity rings, which girls would wear mainly. I don't think many, I don't, I've I've never heard of boys wearing purity rings. Maybe there were some, but I feel like it's more of a, the the onus, the responsibility was on the girl. Um, And they would be wearing these rings, like teenage girls would be wearing like rings on their wedding finger to symbolize um, their commitment to this uh, abstinence pledge. And then you give that ring to your husband, right? When you get married. Yes. Yes. I think that was the idea. Like, look (sighs) what I've saved for you. (laughs) (laughs) And there's also this weird um, dynamic of the father of the girl being responsible also for her purity. Like he would be, watching over her and helping her stay pure. And it was kind of like marriage signified this uh, handing over of responsibility from the father to the husband, like this Mm -hmm. kind of male leadership and authority voice. And then um, one thing before I finish this little explanation, the book I Kissed Dating Goodbye was a huge... It was like the textbook of this movement written by this man named Joshua Harris, who was like a baby at the time. He was like 21 or something. 
Um, and he wrote, he wrote in 1997, this book, um, which was uh, promoting courtship versus dating, basically promoting this whole thing that like, oh, you know, you shouldn't date around and that kind of cheapens your future relationship with your spouse and you should be super intentional and like only engage in that kind of romantic relationship under the authority of your parents, particularly the girl's father. And mm. it discouraged any kind of physical intimacy, even kissing before marriage. And that ruined many people's lives, that book. And, and Joshua Harris in the last couple of years came out and did, I, I don't know if it was a like, explicit apology but he he created a documentary where he interviewed people on on how it affected their lives <laughs> which is wow. kind of interesting because he was kind of still monetizing off of this book you know because he oh. was creating this like media content but i guess he was like had become aware of how problematic the book was um and then he also has left Christianity as well. And he and his wife got a divorce. I mean, it's all kind of sad. We don't want to like rejoice in anyone's divorce, but it's like, wow, you know, it didn't work for him. Right. I mean, also he was 21. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So how did all that affect you, Krista? Ah, Well, uh, just, just to be clear, I was very bought in like, to the point where unprompted, I asked my parents to buy me a purity ring for my 16th birthday. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, yeah, it was like, oh, I am, I am committed to this. Um, so, you know, coming from a, from that sort of place, it, it worked on me <laughs> for a, for a bit. <laughs> um, but so, so many problematic narratives within the purity culture movement that as I've gotten older, um, I can like appreciate a little bit better with a step back. I think, you know, the ones that stick out to me are the importance of virginity, obviously, um, like that women are, I think men too, but definitely the onus, as you say, and the emphasis was on women because we somehow are responsible for men's and boys' thoughts and actions. So like we very much felt like we had to be the ones watching ourselves, making sure we didn't cause other people to stumble or um, have unholy thoughts. Or Or if they did, then it was our fault. Yeah, make them do something they would regret through showing my shoulders. Somehow, <laughs> but I I worked with the one of the other nurses I worked with um, doing sexual assault nurse examine examinations. She said virginity is a biologically meaningless term. Like it means nothing. You can't tell from an exam whether someone's a virgin. It means nothing about whether they wanted that you know physical contact whether they enjoyed it, it means nothing. Um, It means nothing about whether you're able to have emotional bond with whoever you're intimate with in the future. Like it just, it has no bearing. Um, And it is so, it's such a harmful narrative for everyone um, to place such a huge importance on that. 
especially when it's accompanied by like these ideas that you're forever changed once you have sexual contact, once you've had sex, like you can't go back. It's harmful to everyone, but especially for survivors of sexual trauma and violence, you know, like it's just incredibly emotionally damaging. Yeah. There's so much wrong with it, but I think for me personally, that's one of the most harmful things is yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that that's just mm-hmm. so evil. Yeah. Yeah. The like, what were you wearing? Yeah. Or, well, you shouldn't have been alone with them or whatever. You shouldn't have put yourself in that place to be tempted. Mm-hmm. And the it's, idea that yeah. if something happens to you, it has damaged you forever. Right. You know? Right. Did you, I don't remember, um, if you did, you guys get the like sticky tape or yep. the flower petal yep. or the licked lollipop? Like, there's all those uh, Mr. metaphors. Mr. That would do like a special talk. I remember when he would like stick things together on stage in the chapel. Did you look horrified? <laughs> I don't remember this. I probably blocked it out of my memory. No, I think I've repressed a lot of this stuff. Maybe it was after you left. It might have been later on in high school. But I, I distinctly remember up on stage, sticking things together and pulling them apart. And, you know, essentially saying that if you have sex with one person, I don't know, you can't, you, you have to just keep having sex with them. You can't right. switch to anyone else, which, yeah. yeah. Or your like ability to bond meaningfully with another human being diminishes, like yeah. If, yeah. You, if you have sex with multiple people. Yeah. Yeah. The fa- yeah like, like. You know, the human soul and ability to love and be intimate is finite. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. And again, no, no uh, discussion of consent, you know, no. <laughs> absolutely no discussion of that- consent, communicating your boundaries, what to do if your boundaries are being crossed or about to be crossed or have been crossed, like nothing. Yeah. I remember talks about boundaries, but it was the, the focus was like, make sure you have very strict boundaries and you never cross them because once you cross them, you'll like, it was like it's, it you'll was never know where you'll end up. Yeah. It was like boundaries <laughs> for yourself. Like you tell yourself, I'm going to yep. keep my clothes on. And yep. it's like, no matter how much I want to take my clothes off or whatever, <laughs> yes. I'm not going to do it. But then it's like, it, nothing about you want to keep your clothes on and someone else is taking them off of you. Like yeah. no discussion right. about that. Right. Or like, maybe we should also have contingency plans for mm. uh, protecting against like infection and pregnancy. Like mm. it, it was, it was a fear mongering sort of like you had better have boundaries or you're going to, you know, not be able to control the situation, but no talk of like practical ways, like you're saying about consent to say no when you mean to say no, um, or, you know, uh, ways to have discussions with your partner about what you're both comfortable with and that it's an ongoing discussion. It's not a one, one and done. Yeah. Uh, It's always an ongoing conversation because you want to have sex one time. It doesn't mean that you have to have, you have to continue having sex or. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Can I, yeah. Can I ask you this? Uh, Maybe, I don't know. I'm curious what you think about this or or if you've thought about this, you know, in the U S 
I, I read and talk a lot about how abstinence education doesn't work because um, a lot of young people are having sex and they are uh, getting pregnant. They are, you know, getting STDs. And if only we could give them more education, then they can, ha- they can, you know, uh, have more sort of informed decisions that, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of it is on like reducing pregnancies mm-hmm. uh, among young people or um, <clears throat> stuff like that. And I think it's just such a different context in our community because we also only have abstinence education, but we weren't struggling with teen pregnancies, you know? Sure. Um, so what do you think is, like, if you if you look, at, and again, I think I'm generalizing maybe too much, but a lot of the conversation in the U.S. Uh, is the one of the main harms of abstinence-only education is pregnancies, <laughs> you know? But what do you think is one of the main harms overall of abstinence education in a community like ours? Well, um, I think that the vast majority of people who get abstinence-only education are going to eventually have sex with someone, right? What, whatever co- that looks like for you, whatever context it's in, like most people are not going to be absent for their entire life. So by having abstinence only education, you're, you're missing like all of these tools and not knowledge myth busting. Like there's so much, there's so much misconceptions out there, especially among adolescents. Um, but you're missing this opportunity to have conversations to prepare them for when they do eventually have sex. Right. Like how many of us got those conversations at home? Not many. Right. Like we got we got the book. Maybe maybe you read I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Um, You got a purity ring, but there was no talk of like, okay, well, when you are ready and you find a partner that you want to engage with in this way and be intimate with. Um, here's like some things you should know and some um, important steps you should take to make sure you both are staying healthy and um, are doing things in a way that's safe. You know, abstinence-only education is only good for as long as you're abstinent, then it's, then you miss them, miss the whole point. I mean, at CAJ, I don't think, at least when we were there, that people were having sex, right? Uh, there were, I mean, I, going back, I mean, there were pregnancies there. It wasn't as, I mean, probably statistically it's way less than a public school in America, but it did happen. So, mm-hmm. and there were people having sex, but it, it was like probably less and very secret. <laughs> yes, exactly. Given, given the culture we were in, if you were having sex, like you, that was not something you would want people to know. It was probably very, very covered up. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of like, you know, almost a a zoomed out sort of sociological perspective. I'm just trying to think like, you know, how did it affect us the most? I wonder, do you think that like early marriages is one of our symptoms, you know, where it's like, okay, I can't have sex till I get married. And so we're going to get married so we can have sex. And so if if we had better sex education, maybe people would stop getting married so young. Do you think that you can say that? 
I mean, I, and I will say, I, I do remember just like, to be fair, I do remember in health class, like talking about condoms and like there was, there was some talk of that. So I wouldn't say we exclusively got abstinence only education at CAJ, um, but the culture was very much abstinence only, right? Um, the, the bigger culture we were in, but you're, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I was talking about early marriages. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that when, okay, most teenagers have a lot of interest in sex. Most adolescents, early teens, like there's a lot of interest. Um, you either channel that into exploring with part, like partners that you're not married to, or if you're in this paradigm where sex is only right and good in a marriage between a man and a woman, then you pursue that marriage between a man and a woman because then you're like, okay, well, sex is supposed to be great once I get married, right? And it often isn't if that's your, been your only experience um, and you weren't, you haven't had sort of preparation to have sex that's fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I do, I do think it, that's when I said perverse incentives before, that's what I'm, that's kind of what I think of is this push to get, married young because you want the emotional commitment and the safety as well. But I, Mm. and you want, you know, a partner in life. I get all of that. I got married on the young side, but also you want to have sex. Like there's no way to take that out of the equation. (laughs) You know, it's like, we, we all talk about the wedding night, the wedding night. Like it's, it's this huge thing in the, in, in church culture, at least in what, in what I grew up in. Or what we grew up in, I feel like it was, it was like put on this pedestal, like the wedding night's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, if you've never been penetrated by anything, it's not going to be amazing the first mm-hmm. time. And it's if not. you don't even know. <laughs> or you don't work up to it, you like. know? Yes, exactly. If you've never had any, any sexual experience. Yeah. Yeah. Or, and you're actively discouraged from exploring with yourself what you like, right? Right. You're actively shamed for that. So how can you, if you don't even know, because you're so ashamed and, or don't think you can Mm -hmm. um, self-experiment on your own, Mm -hmm. how are you supposed to communicate that to a partner? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's this weird dynamic of like, okay, you have to remain chaste and pure in your thoughts and your actions, but then boom, on your wedding night, yes. like, have at it, kids. Go for <laughs> it. And then it's like, wow, I, you know, we've been taught to like turn off our brains in that like section, like repress all yeah. of that. And then how are you suddenly supposed to like engage in this really, it's like a pretty intense experience, you know, like that transition from not, yeah, being, being like exploring. Yeah. And yeah, talking about self-exploration, like masturbation was, I don't know if it was explicitly like condemned at, you know, in, in sex ed conversations at CAJ, but maybe not in health class, but at youth group for sure. Oh Oh my God. High BA was constantly trying to get people to confess that they were like having sexual thoughts like constantly it was like and then of course no one's gonna confess so we're all just sitting around awkwardly waiting for someone to raise their hand and be like yes i masturbate but no one was gonna do that Oh God! I mean, I feel like for youth group, all of the come to Jesus moments and like all of the like 
you know, kind of revival things. I feel like it's, you know, if, if people are like, I have an unspoken sin, you know, I need prayer for something in my life. You know, it's, it's about masturbation, like hundred yeah. yeah. percent. Yeah. And there's so much, yeah, there's so much shame ab- yeah. around it, so um, much. which I, I mean, uh, yeah, that, that, that affects that affects your partnered sex too, you know, if you, totally. like, you just have this, like, yeah, even for myself thinking like I would have these like just circle like loops of like, I mm-hmm. masturbated. Oh my God, I need to, you know, repent. Like I'm not going to take communion at church. Um, I need to really, you know, commit to never ever touching my body again <laughs> for my own pleasure. Right. <laughs> um, and having these like, you know, but then I would like, I would, I would sin again. And then, um, just like this intense roller coaster of my, you know, internal journey, like, you know, when other people, other kids around the world are just like jerking off and it's totally normal. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I, so this has always been really interesting to me because I feel like masturbation would probably keep people celibate for longer if you know like if they're not ready to have partnered sex but they they want to experience pleasure because what also side note why is pleasure so bad like what's bad with that because our human bodies are bad Krista. our human bodies are bad i guess um but like that's a great way to explore your sexuality you know Mm -hmm. like i think there are probably people who would maybe not have partnered sex for longer if they yeah. felt like masturbation was okay and normal, which it is. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let me ask you this. If you were to go to CAJ, uh, you know, next week <laughs> and give a talk, what would you want to tell, like, current, you know, I don't know if you would have a focus of, like, <sighs> high schoolers or middle schoolers or elementary school students. If you had a captive audience of young people at CAJ, uh, let's say you have one hour talk. Oh God! What would you say? Oh, that one hour. Well, okay, it would be a very different hour for the elementary school kids and and the adults. Let's just be be clear about that. Um, but honestly, I feel like often the most beneficial thing is just letting them ask questions because kids are. Kids are talking, kids are looking stuff up. You know, there's lots of information out there, but like giving them good references, good information, um, dispelling some myths. I think that is generally like in my clinical practice, that's where I find I have the most, I feel like I get, I get the most out of the time. Um, but I think so, under- like You mean you have, um- people like asking you questions like, is this true? I'm worried about this yeah. kind of thing. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I heard this. Can that really happen? Um, you know, so, so many questions. Um, but I think fundamentally like understanding how our bodies work, how to be safe, how to respect others and like what kinds of things can can, can contribute to good sex and enjoyable and enjoyable sex life. Mm. I, you know, I think that last part is probably less acceptable in an academic setting, but I think it's important to talk about. So maybe not at school, but. (laughs) 
Juju, I feel like you also have a lot of thoughts about this. If you had one hour, what would you cover? About like sex ed in particular? Yeah. yeah. Oh, um, well, I think going back to consent is so important. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we already talked about this a bit, but like the the relationship between purity culture and rape culture, which places mm-hmm. um, all the responsibility like on you know, the victim for, like, tempting the attacker or whatever, just, like, you know, I want to dispel and destroy that myth. And, I mean, also, if we, it it comes back to modesty, too, and this policing of behavior. And I would want to push back against this idea that, like, you know, what you wear defines who you are, you know, like, slut-shaming, like, you, I mean, wear whatever the hell you want and... Yeah. Um, that doesn't define, you know, if you're a good girl or whatever, um, whatever you feel good wearing, that's what you should wear. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the main things that was really like a big lesson for me that really changed my perspective was learning about, um, just facts about, you know, uh, sexual assault, sexual abuse, and the fact that you are in more danger in your own home than in Mm -hmm. your dark alley. You know, Mm -hmm. that when we talk about sexual assault, uh, it's, it's almost always someone that, you know, um, it's, it's not a stranger. And I think that, um, I think that piece can make a big difference And, you know, Mm because I was always being warned, right, about being careful, don't be out late. Yeah. Um, But it was uh, a stranger is going to attack you. Um, But no, we need to be talking about, um, yeah, what do you do when someone that you know is doing something that's making you feel uncomfortable? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think... I've, I've seen a big move towards um, like bodily autonomy being taught even at a young age, you know, like from the, you don't have to go kiss grandpa if you don't feel comfortable to, um, you know, what do you want to wear? You know, like there's, yeah. there's ways to start that conversation at a young age. Yeah. Um, oh, that's age I- appropriate. I met my uh, neighbor <laughs> the other day, four-year-old, and uh, within a few minutes of meeting her, she puts her hands out and she says, hug or no hug? Oh, and, so and I said hug, but I was like, what a great thing. Like, she's four years old, and she yeah. has learned that you ask hug or no hug. Absolutely. Part of that might be, might be pandemic-related, too. But <laughs> sure. But But still, yeah, it's a good lesson. I'm actually, um, I'm really proud of Washington State. Um, Just a little shout out. We passed, um, the voters like voted on this uh, comprehensive sex ed bill. So now they're going to be, because up up till now, school districts were able to choose whether they wanted to do it or not. Um, So now it's going to be a little more of a comprehensive thing that's covered um, starting in elementary school, but in elementary school, it's starting with the emotional maturity or emotional um, 
skills like interpersonal mm-hmm. relational skills, mm-hmm. those basic those basic concepts about consent, bodily autonomy, and an introduction to anatomy, you know, like what what's where, how does it work? Um, and then as they get older, it's gonna be um, more more in depth, obviously. Um, but they're also gonna talk about like gender identity and all of that stuff that we're we're learning so much more about as a culture, I think. Yeah. Um, speaking of Washington, um, I am curious, sorry, this is a little bit of a transition, but I, I am curious about your cultural identity. Um, you know, we've been talking about TCK and like identity mm-hmm. and just things like that. Um, so yeah, I guess like, can you talk a little bit about how you identify now or how you have identified growing up or, you know, didn't know how to identify, like, do you, do you consider yourself a TCK, anything like that? I would say I did consider myself a third culture kid, TCK, just based on the fact that both my parents are from Washington State. They're from, you know, they're American, grew up in Japan. And so sort of this like in between, but we were in an international setting. So definitely didn't feel Japanese. I kind of felt American, but like didn't really understand American culture completely. But um, I think my parents did a good job of keeping us connected to our family here. Uh, since they were both teachers, we were, and um, they weren't missionaries, but you know they were involved. My mom taught at CJ. So every summer we would come back to Washington State for a couple months, usually spend time with my grandparents and my aunt and uncle. So this, this very much felt like a second home for me. And now that I've been here over 10 years, it, it, I would say it feels like home, but in a different way than Japan feels like home. But I don't identify, I don't identify strongly as an American. I think culturally, I probably am pretty Western or American, whatever, some, some blend. Um, But yeah, doesn't, doesn't mean I'm not like ultra patriotic. (laughs) What about, you know, I think For me, I learned a lot about what it meant to be white when I moved to the U.S. What Mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, after graduating from Mm CAJ, what was that like for you in um, learning about uh, race, especially in the the Western context? Or or did you, I don't know, what's, what what were your um, perceptions of of being white? Yeah, I think it's funny because growing up in Japan, you're very aware that you're white, but it doesn't, you don't have to think about it in the same way as, because like you stand out, but then you come here and the rules of this country were sort of made for whiteness. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think it's, I wasn't confronted with it maybe in the same way that some people are because I was in a community that and still am, live in a community that is very predominantly Caucasian, white. Washington State is not all that diverse (laughs) compared to some other states. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't something that we really talked about a lot, either growing up or at SPU, but over, like, over the years, it's become more part of the general conversation. Um, I think especially in the medical community, Again, I don't know that much, but from what I've heard, like, for example, there are, like, when we think about, like, nurses, right, a lot of nurses are women of color, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we think about who is doing a lot of this like caring labor, as well as yeah. like for low paid positions, right? Not yeah. just nursing, but like cleaning staff or anything like that. I yeah. think we, we see so much uh, how, um, you know, exploitative these roles are, right? And I've also been um, reading a lot about racism within the medical field, Mm -hmm. Um, just the different Mm -hmm. ways that it plays out. Like, do you think working in the medical field, you have gotten more of a glimpse of um, just like how white supremacy works, I guess, in that institution? Yeah, I think that's, I think it's a good example of how it's kind of pervasive, uh, but not necessarily talked about. Like so many of our drug trials or um, big studies on medical conditions were performed with cohorts of white men, you know, for, for various reasons, but um, it's not representative of the world's uh, demographic or even just like sort of a hierarchical nature of medicine, um, you know, sort of with physicians at the top and, um, who are more likely to be white men. And then as you say, like you kind of go down this hierarchy, you're more likely to have people of color or women um, sort of in, pow- in positions that are less empowered, particularly around decision-making about how things are run. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think like in a lot of other arenas, there's more conversations happening about what what that means and how to include more voices at the table um, for decisions of how things are run or responded to, but there's a long way to go, <laughs> still a long way to go. And and that's not even to like touch on the fact that there are so many examples of communities of color being taken advantage of by the medical community and some like very deeply rooted and like for good reason, mistrusts, people mistrust, don't trust at all the medical establishment. You know, I was just working in the um, Alaska Native system in Alaska, and they've had some really, really bad experiences, like historically as communities um, with white people coming in and taking land, taking control of industry, but also they're not always getting um, culturally sensitive care from these Western, you know, traditionally Western Caucasian providers that come in. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Does that sort of answer your question? (laughs) Oh, it's really, yeah, it's interesting. I think like you mentioned growing up in Japan as a white person, um, you're labeled as gaijin, like it's kind of this like term that applies to foreigners. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yep. you're kind of just like lumped well. into that. But then once <laughs> you go to your, you know, go to America and there's so much, so many layers to unpack and it's, yeah, it's just way more nuanced. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's nuanced in Japan. It's just that people, people are not having conversations, right? There's not, 
Uh, there's not all of this literature being written. There's not this known history of like civil rights movements and, and things like that. Like, I think in Japan, there is so much racism and identity is so uh, fundamental to who has access to power and resources, but it's so unspoken. Um, yeah. Versus in the US, especially, of course, in certain areas more than others. Uh, people are really talking about it because people have been talking about it, you know, for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's more the difference of just uh, how, 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 how big of a conversation it is, I guess. I really appreciated your point on one of your earlier podcasts about who gets to be called immigrants versus expats. It's like, um, yeah, like my parents are totally economic immigrants, but never heard that term used for them. But then you think of all the people from the surrounding countries, um, you know, Southeast Asians moving to Japan or, you know, from wherever uh, people of color moving to Japan to work, don't get called expats. (laughs) They get called immigrants. So, you know, it's true. It's true there, whether that's just because we were in a Western community. So that's the language we had, but yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's true that like gaijin can be like a really uh, big category and uh, xenophobia, you know, can we can use the word xenophobia to describe a lot of what the different things that, you know, many of us experienced. Um, And I was, like you said, like just so conscious of standing out And I definitely had like negative experiences, but I also grew up having people coming up to me and telling me that I was so beautiful. Yes. Right? Yes. Your eyes. Wow. Your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's not, it's like, it's, and, and we didn't really break that down. You know, we didn't really think about, oh, how much white supremacy is, is tied into Japanese culture and mm-hmm. how much people who are gaijin but not white experience yeah. so much uh, fear and vi- you know violence even or, or just yeah. negative treatment way more than if you're a white gaijin. Right. I w- I would say I came out of living in Japan as a as a gaijin feeling special. Yeah. More than feeling like an an someone on in the out group. You know, mm-hmm. like. Like I am obviously somewhat in the out group there, but because of what you're talking about, white whiteness is still in a way sort of more highly valued. Yeah. And, 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 and how much of that is ingrained? Speaking right. English. Totally. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. If, if we didn't speak English, it would have been a totally different experience. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I think then like recent, more recent talk, conversations happening about um you know black lives matter and um all the more the broader conversations about white privilege like it just makes me think about for for generations have had this like stack stacking privilege like Mm. my my grandmother had a graduate degree Mm. which like in that generation was probably pretty rare but yeah you know, she, they were able to own land wherever they wanted. Um, they had good social support. They had good incomes. 
you know, it's, it's just, it builds and you, and until you really think about how many, like on a systemic level, how many more white families have that story than people of color um, just makes you really realize I'm, I'm a product of white privilege, you know, in that way. So, so this is a little bit changing the subject, Krista, but I, mm-hmm. I, I just assumed that your parents were missionaries. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot because, of people do. <laughs> yeah. I guess like if you're white at CAJ, that's kind of the default. Right. Um, but do you think the fact that your parents were not missionaries, did that influence your experience at CAJ? Yeah. Did that give you kind of a different perspective on things you think? I, I think so. On the one hand, I was super jealous of everyone's uh, mission retreats. <laughs> like we didn't, we didn't get those, but I guess we got to go back to the U S and hang out in my grandma's yard every summer. So that was cool too. <laughs> um, but my extended family is not really religious. So in a way, I, I think I grew up with this example of how like amazing, loving, smart, compassionate people can be outside of Christianity. Mm. Um, so while I was making my paradigm shift, it was sort of like, well, they seem to be doing just fine and it must not be that bad. You know, <laughs> you know, mm. like, it made me feel like it would be okay. Like um, I'm not part of a family that revolves around religion per se. So it felt safer to Mm. explore. And my, and my, like my partner was so, so supportive and my family was supportive during that time. So I think, I mean, I think maybe not as much like you're saying Juju while I was at, um, at COJ, but afterwards it sort of gave me space. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, like, we are hearing from people now who are saying, I cannot come out as non-Christian because, you know, for the sake of my family. Right. Um, That is such a huge factor in totally uh, everyone having to be so careful about what we say and who Mm -hmm. we say it to. Mm-hmm. And, around, and who's going to tell on you and who's going to say, oh, so-and-so's kid is doing this, you know, like, I think that that did make such a big difference for you that you didn't have to worry about your parents' coworkers, you know, seeing a picture of you or, or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think, yeah, I think it gave me a little bit more safety in the unknown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, you know, even still, like, so many of the people that I knew my entire life, like, our community mm-hmm. is growing up was all of those people. Mm-hmm. Even if they weren't my immediate family or, like, part of a mission where we were being supported to go evangelize, it, it still is, a, it's a scary thing to say, to, like, make it public that, like, you're not part of that anymore. Yeah. Um, it's and you think like, well, are all these people going to be praying for me or worrying about me? Am yeah. I now the example yeah. of what happens when you engage with the secular world? Yep. Are people reaching out to me out of concern for my soul or yep. out of concern for my my person? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. what, kind of, what kind of DMs am I going to get? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or just and, like, and, what relationships are now just fully cut off? Yeah, because fully cut off. Know, then they can never, we can never relate to each other in the same way. Right, right. Either cut off or just 
shallow. Like it's going to be surface level now because we can't possibly explore the the deeper, deeper experiences without being on that same page, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I hope there are not that many of my friends that would feel that way, but you wonder. Yeah. Um, and I, I, for that reason, am so glad you guys are doing this. Cause I think there's a lot of us who have been in that spot feeling like you can't come out of, mm-hmm. you know, with, with how you now see the world. Um, the non-Christian closet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. The non-Christian closet. And now maybe some people will say, Hey, there's these, these, uh, ladies who are also in my same boat or similar boat and it's okay. You know, you don't yeah. have to be so alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I don't, I, like, I think that I, I would like to imagine that I can have meaningful conversations with people that are still Christian. I think that it's something that we need to practice. It's something that we have not really been able to do. And so maybe we don't know how to do it, but I think that we can practice figuring out how can we still relate to each other, maybe in some ways, while in other ways we don't. I mean, that's just the nature of human relationships, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I was just saying that like, um, I, I don't want to also like put some kind of black and white thinking like, Oh, you know, you, you can't be, you, you can't deconstruct like your experience as a missionary kid and, and be a Christian still like, right. Maybe, maybe you can, and maybe it works great for you. And like, maybe you can be queer and very involved in your church and very happily a Christian. Mm-hmm. Like there are all these possibilities out there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'd love to talk to people who fall into those categories as right. well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I would say, you know, I like all of the people that I have met since, you know, in the last five years, like there's so many people that I have deep, meaningful relationships with that have a completely different belief system than me. It, mm-hmm. it is entirely possible, but it's, it's sometimes hard when I like, I think it's hard when you had a shared given understanding with someone and now I'm the one that's changed. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I, like uh, Nashe said uh, when we were interviewing her, there's so much fear. Like we were raised to fear anyone who was outside of our world. And I remember feeling that fear of like, you know, hearing about people who, who were not Christian, you know, not following the Christian path or whatever. And I was like, Oh no, it's such a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. So it, it is so real that there is this closet that <laughs> us feel like we have to stay in. And it's such a, it, it is a big step to, to come out of the closet in, in that way. Yeah. All right, guys, I, um, I'm putting them on my pants as I talk. Oh. <laughs> I, need, I need to go to work. Um, but please continue the conversation. Sounds good. <laughs> so nice it's great talking to with you. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Well, let's do. You know, we have to do the last question. Yeah. So, uh, I guess you can think about it looking back, or or what you are doing now. Uh, how do you define radical healing for yourself? I would say. To me, radical healing 
is unconditional self-love, unconditional self-positive regard, letting go of things that are harmful and not helpful and embracing things that are. Mm. If I were to put it in a nutshell. That's a great nutshell. (laughs) Yeah, that's, yeah, that totally makes sense. Do you want to talk about, I guess maybe just because for me, this is like a big part of it, but do you want to talk about uh, how you've dealt with like stress, anxiety, depression, anything like that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say this past year, I, I think a lot of us with the pandemic have had like unprecedented levels of anxiety probably. And for me being in rural Alaska alone was extremely anxiety producing. For me, I, the way, like the ways that I engage in self-care most reliably are time outside, time being active. It's like sort of like running is sort of my like I zone, I zone out or, or I just think about things or I don't, you know, it's my like away from whatever it is that's stressing me out time. Uh, or sometimes it's a walk if I don't feel like running. <laughs> um, but I have a, I now have a dog who requires one or the other. So. <laughs> um, but, you know, finding the thing that lets you sort of reset, unwind, think, think through whatever you need to think through. Um, and I also think therapy is great. I think there are a lot of people out there who would greatly benefit from professional professional help or having like a trusted person that is is a, a good person to bounce your thoughts and feelings off of or more than one person. You know, there's there's just so many there's so many ways and it, every, everyone needs something different. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. 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 Is there anything else that I know we kind of went off the script, <laughs> but I, I want to make sure if you, if you had notes, you know, if there's something else that you wanted to cover. I think we covered a lot, I guess. I mean, one thing that I would say about the world we grew up in is that I fit, like I fit the mold. Mm-hmm. I was like all the right things. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I may not have the same like traumatic experiences that some others mm-hmm. might. And when you say it's fit just, the mold, like Christian, I'm white, I'm white Christian, cis. cisgendered, heterosexual, hard, like driven in school, mm-hmm. extracurriculars, peppy, mm-hmm. but not rebellious. Like I'm all, I'm all the things yeah. <laughs> um, that were valued. And so I, I felt incredibly loved and valued, mm. but I recognize that that might not be the case for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important to, yeah. For people like you and I to, to recognize. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this, this whole process is like, I, I have not arrived, you know, like this right. is a, I'm still, I'm still trying to figure it out too, but I'm, I'm glad we're having these conversations. Yeah. Um, I, I sent our first episode to a couple friends who, um, grew up in the U S and it was kind of funny to hear their reactions because some things they could really relate to just in terms of like religion or something like Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. 
just you know like uh i was talking i was going i don't know about the pilgrims <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I think some things it's just so hard to explain to someone who didn't grow up in that like really intense like Christian bubble of like mm-hmm. just all of the like I don't know. Did it did you have a oh my gosh, I grew up in Footloose moment? I've never seen Footloose. I want to watch oh. it. <laughs> I I had never seen it until I came to college and I was telling people about our like no dance yeah. rule. And they're like, oh my God, you grew up in the Footloose town. Yeah. Oh, I kind of did. <laughs> That's so funny. I guess. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate um, you, you know, just sharing about your life and your experiences. It's definitely a vulnerable thing, you know, to, <laughs> to know that other people are going to be listening and probably judging. <laughs> probably judging. Totally. And that's why I like, I, you know, I'm, I made all these notes because I didn't want to say the wrong thing, but ult- ultimately it's not about saying the wrong or right thing. It's about having the conversation. Yeah. And, and the purpose of this is to, like I said, like practice having these more open conversations that we never witnessed growing up. You know, I think about creating something that I would have benefited from as a, as a young person, or I mean, I'm still young, but as a a child, (laughs) um, and, you know, thinking about if there are younger people listening to this, like, you know, just, you're not alone, you know, whatever your story is, whatever your path is, it's okay if it's not what you expected it to be, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to hear how things go, listen to your upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Radical Healing Podcast. This podcast is made by Erica Heesby and Julianne Picardo with music by Marlis Townsend. You can find and subscribe to Radical Healing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information and more resources, check out our website, RadicalHealingPod.com, and follow us on Instagram, at RadicalHealingPod. We're always looking for more people who'd like to share their story, whether it's about the CAJ experience, growing up international, or Radical Healing. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email at RadicalHealingPod at gmail.com.